Hello and welcome to The World in 30 Minutes, the podcast on the events, policies and ideas that will shape the world from the European Council on Foreign Relations. My name is Mark Leonard, I'm Director of ECFR, and this week's podcast will be about our new public opinion poll and a major report which was published this week, which we're calling Keeping America Close, Russia Down and China Far Away how Europeans navigate a competitive world. In April of this year, ECFR conducted an opinion poll across 11 EU member states, Austria, Bulgaria, Denmark, France, Germany, Hungary, Italy, the Netherlands, Poland, Spain, and Sweden, to try and understand how European citizens see their place in the world today. And I'm thrilled to be joined by the two authors of our report, which analyzes the data, Jana Pulierin and Pavel Terka. They uh, wrote this policy brief, which tries to make sense of what the main relationships are, whether there are big divisions between member states, within member states, between citizens and their governments. And um, we're going to start by letting them tell us about what's in the poll. Jana and Pavel, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. So, Jana, seeing as you were first off the mark, why don't you start by telling us what you think the most important findings in the poll were? I can tell you what I found most surprising, and that is compared to a poll that we did two years ago, uh, where we basically asked people how they perceive other countries, um, and we checked the United States, China, um, and Russia. And compared to that poll two years ago, when you look at the results for China, Um, they are basically still the same, or um, the outcome is even more positive for China. So after all this talking for the past years about China being increasingly uh, a systemic rival and a competitor and basically a threat, I was expecting more Europeans to see China uh, as such and that this would be reflected in our poll. But instead, the largest number of um, uh, of respondents chose to say that China is a necessary partner, a country you need to work with. That was just what I found very surprising, especially if you compare it to another finding, which um, I, I expected, but I think is still remarkable. So we see that uh, when it comes to Russia, Europeans are in fact very united in seeing Russia as an adversary. And that compared to two years ago is really a landslide. Um, a lot has shifted. And, and if kind of I stick to this German narrative of the Zeiten, then uh, uh, one could really argue that the Zeiten then uh, has happened in our relationship with Russia when it comes to public perception, but not um, with China. The interesting bit here that I um, found maybe not surprising, but still very impressive was that when you look at um, what people want for a future relationship with Russia, that here um, the unity um, has definitely some cracks. I mean, We have majorities or pluralities in all countries saying um, we need some kind of relationship with Russia in the future, but you have clear differences between, for example, Poland, where basically every third poll um, says we need to to cut all ties with Russia. We need to definitely um, have a non-relationship with Russia, basically, to, if you compare that to people not only in Bulgaria or Austria, Italy, 
um, where numbers were, I think, uh, 30% plus in favor of returning to a fully cooperative relationship, but also to my country, Germany, where um, basically 25% of the people, or 26 in that case, but one-fourth one of the population wants to go back to a fully cooperative relationship. And all these findings, I thought, were really remarkable. Great. No, it's, it's very interesting. Let's not um, do it all in one uh, in one answer. So maybe we can kind of break it down a bit, because I think what it was most interesting interesting about the poll was for me was the um uh the u.s um china um material which i'd like to go into in more detail but it, it's interesting to kind of look at, at how things are panning out for all three of those kind of really important relationships our relationship with the u.s with russia with china and to go a bit deeper in them powerful you are a master of the the kind of intricacies of all of these polls should we go through each of those three relationships um one at a time and kind of go a bit deeper in them i mean in a way the russia thing's the least surprising the fact that um that there's been a big shift um, on Russia it is both well documented in terms of government policies, but we've seen it in lots of our polls, how people increasingly see Russia as an adversary, etc. But I suppose what Jana was saying at the end there was that though Europeans are kind of united in seeing Russia as an adversary and as a rival in the short term, there could be some kind of longer term divisions after the war when we think about the sort of longer term relationship. So it might be more interesting if I slightly disagree with you and with Jana. Uh, I think that with, with public opinion, you can look at the data uh, as a glass half full or glass half empty uh, on many occasions. And that's how I look at the, at the data about how Europeans per perceive Russia as well. Because for me, the main and most surprising finding of this study is that uh, there is a room for, for a compromise among Europeans on what the relationship of Europe with Russia as well as U the US and China should look like in the uh, in the future. And uh, although, of course, Europeans differ uh, on um, on how the future relationship should look like, should there be a peace uh, uh, deal between uh, Russia and Ukraine. And indeed, in Poland, there are many people who would like to cut all the ties of their country, uh, even if there is a peace agreement. Whereas there are countries like Bulgaria, where plenty of people, more actually a majority, would like to reestablish all ties, uh, like fully cooperative ties with Russia. Still, in every country, the prevailing opinion is that that the, that Europe and their countries should have limited relationship with Russia. For me, this provides a ground for a for a consensus among Europeans on what that uh, relationship should look like, as long as we don't allow the extremes to drive the debate. Okay. That's that's a big uh, caveat in today's politics about not letting the extremes drive the debates. But it has confirmed that the Russian findings are the least interesting in the in the survey. Mm, yes and no, because I what I find interesting is that in some countries opinions have sh shifted remarkably. Currently, majority of the French public sees Russia as the adversary. Or, adversary of their country, whereas there is still the stereotype of, of France having a soft spot for uh, for Moscow. And so th that, that approach has shifted quite remarkably in France, although less remarkably so in Italy or in Austria. Great. Okay. So can we maybe now turn to the, the US-China thing? So it was pretty amazingly interesting that a majority of Europeans say that they want to stay neutral if there is a war over Taiwan um, and the US takes Taiwan's uh, 
side uh, against China when it invades it. And that is quite an extraordinary finding, given what you know, we see from the speeches of, of Ursula von der Leyen on China and the kind of emerging consensus in different member states and all the talk about a transatlantic coming together. The fact that public opinion seems to be a lot closer to the approach that the Emmanuel Macron was completely vilified for um, than, than to Ursula von der Leyen is a sort of striking finding, particularly as everyone was accusing uh, Macron of, of like falsely speaking for Europe when uh, he was contradicting, it seemed to be contradicting what other players were, were saying. Were you as surprised by that finding as I was, by the, the intensity of, um, of people's uh, desire to, to stay out of any conflicts in the Taiwan Straits? Well, I don't know, um, because, again, going back to the survey we did two years ago, what came out of that finding was that Europeans just want a cooperative world and see basically um, a world full of strategic partners. They don't see adversaries. And I think although Europeans have come a long way and our current poll confirms this, they are only slowly basically adapting to a world of great power competition and a a jungle (laughs) out there, basically. And so I think looking at the EU as a peace project and war being absent from our continent for such a long time, I think Europeans now have basically accepted that war is back in Ukraine, which is close uh, to yeah, many of, uh, of the European countries um, where we polled, like the, in Bulgaria, in, in Poland, but also in, in Germany. And I think maybe the instinct still is to stay out of wars in general and not to get, as Emmanuel Macron has so eloquently said uh, in this interview, not to get dragged into crises that are not ours. Um, And I think, although I don't side with Macron uh, on what he said, I think many Europeans have exactly this sentiment that this is far away, that the United States and China are on a coalition course, and they don't want to be part of this game. Although, of course, Europe already is and cannot avoid to be part of a possible confrontation, has already a lot of own issues with China, which are very similar to what the Americans um, are saying. But still, I think the gut feeling of many Europeans still is we want to be cooperative, we want to uh, work with partners, and we see the world as a place where we can peacefully live together. Can you, I mean, before we pass judgment on whether Europeans are right or wrong, let's sort of understand where they're at. Pavel, do you want to go into a bit more detail? Because the headline finding was was that, what, 62% of people wanted to to remain neutral if there was a war between the two. That's But that's an aggregate of 11 very different countries. How much of a divergence was there from country to country? Or was it, was it is the aggregate a good representation of where most people are? It is in the sense that in every country, except for Sweden, there is more than 50% that would like to stay neutral in the eventuality of such a conflict. And in Sweden, it's 49%. So actually also technically half of the population. And it's only 23% on average that would like to side with the US in such a conflict. 
which goes as high as 35% in Sweden or 31% in Poland for their country to uh, to, to support uh, the US in a, in a war over Taiwan with China. But I think that there are two elements of the context that, that, that are uh, important to remember. Uh, one is that we actually already asked a similar question in the past. In our first major pan-European polling in early 2019, we asked an almost identical question with the uh, important ex- uh, uh, exception being that we didn't mention Taiwan. We simply asked, okay, if there is a conflict between US and China, do you want to stand by the US, stand by China, remain neutral? And already back then, we observed that Europeans have this preponderant tendency to to prefer neutrality. But there, and there of, was a big difference in the A, didn't mention Taiwan, but secondly, Trump was in the White House then and we hadn't had the war in Ukraine. So I think... That- but despite those differences, numbers overall were quite similar, uh, except for some countries. So, so what I find interesting is that there are some countries where not numbers have shifted, including most of all Sweden. Back then, 15% of the Swedes wanted to uh, side with the US. Right now, it's 35%. Back then, uh, 70% of the Swedes wanted to be neutral. Now, it's slightly less than, than half of the population. And, and similar developments you can observe in Denmark, in Germany. So I think that there are some national stories on this issue. Despite that uh, preference for neutrality, something is slowly shifting in Europe. And the other element of the context so Just is- on that, very quickly, it's very interesting because we were all in Sweden last week for our annual council meeting and I spoke to some incredibly senior Swedish political figures about uh, about this and why they thought that public opinion had shifted on China and Sweden. And they said that nowadays, everything's seen through the Russian lens. So it has coloured the way that they look at everything and- Obviously, neutrality is not as popular in Sweden as it was uh, before they were keen on joining NATO. I, I have also heard that Sweden, as a future member of NATO, is currently showing on every occasion uh, how how good a candidate is it and, and that it translates to the level of public opinion. But let me mention quickly the other element of the context is that we also asked this year whether people... Uh, consider it as likely that that Americans were to enter into a war over Taiwan with China, and most Europeans do not consider it uh, it as a possible event. And in such a case, it doesn't cost them much to say, "Yeah, if if it happens, let's stay neutral," because they don't sufficiently, to my belief. Uh, take into account that such an event could actually take place. This is a, a lesson for me that if policymakers should do something based on this public opinion poll, it, it's also to uh, engage more in the in a discussion with the public on some events that could actually happen and for which the public does not seem to be prepared. And some, I mean, some people have been criticizing our poll, saying that we asked basically the wrong question or gave uh, wrong options uh, for answers because uh, it was more a question of the Europeans siding with Taiwan than siding with the United States. But I'm personally not that convinced um, because I really think that for most people um, that Taiwan is still a faraway place and it is not 
that widely known how important it is strategically also for us when it comes to supply chains and semiconductors and yeah, our, our economy and, and what it would basically mean for us in Europe if such a war uh, would happen or doesn't need to be a fully fledged war. Just yeah. I fully agree. And in that sense, you can again look at this as a glass half full. Actually, it's surprising to see that over 30% of Poles and Swedes and almost a third of the Dutch and Danish, a quarter of Spanish and French would like to side with the US in a conflict which is so distant, not just geographically, but also as a possibility, because it's not discussed that much in the European public media, perhaps except for uh, Germany especially when compared to the war in Ukraine, which is uh, overwhelming uh, in, in the media uh, reports that, that people are following. Um, we also had some other interesting findings on China because we asked a, a whole battery of questions apart. I mean, this obviously the most extreme one is what happens if there's a war. Uh, but we asked them a lot of the questions about economic security, which are kind of heavily on the European agenda at the moment. Do you want to talk about the, the range of, of options there? Because we looked at I mean, de-risking is a slightly difficult to understand bit of Euro jargon, but we tried to make it a bit more concrete by asking people about whether they were happy with the Chinese building our infrastructure or buying our football teams or things like that. Do you want to talk a bit about that? Before we do this, can I just um, add another um, finding? Because... I still find that striking. We asked people whether they are aware of the close partnership between China and Russia, because as you know, there is this no limits partnership that was agreed um, last year in, in February. And actually, people are pretty aware. Um, I think over 60% or 60% uh, kind of in, uh, on average say there is this partnership. They are not really sure uh, who is in the driver's seat or whether China and Russia are equal partners. Um, but they see it. And I think it's even more remarkable that they see the support also th that China gives to Russia, but they still see Russia as the adversary and, and China as, as the partner. So and we also asked this really interesting question about whether um, Europeans should impose sanctions against China if they arm Russia, which is one of the big red lines that European uh, governments have been laying out in their contact with Beijing. And opinion's pretty split on that at the moment, isn't it, Pavel? It is. Um, there are just three countries where there is clearly a majority, uh, those three countries being Sweden, Denmark, and the Netherlands, where there is an absolute majority, over 50% of respondents, saying that we should impose sanctions on China, even if that seriously harms Western economies, whereas there are countries, especially in, in, this, in Southern Europe, like uh, Bulgaria, Italy, Hungary, also Austria, uh, where the prevailing view is now that we should protect European economies and we should not impose sanctions on China because that can seriously affect Western economies. So it's interesting to see here the divide between European countries in what is the prevailing view, but it's also interesting to see that in every country, actually, this opinion is, is pretty much split. Although I would still insist that the big news that I get from this is that there is quite a lot of people and the prevailing view, 41%, saying that we should impose sanctions in such an event when China arms uh, Russia, which confirms uh, our reading that this is a major red line for the Europeans. And what um, what's because the two countries you didn't mention are the two biggest ones, France and Germany, where do they end up on that? They are split. 
although Germany is more split than France. In France, it's still the, the view that we should impose sanctions on China is, is a prevailing one. 41% of the French say we should do it, while uh, just 29% say, no, it's important to protect European economies. And there is a third of the population which responds, don't know. And what about in Germany? I think in Germany, by 1%, the camp of those saying we shouldn't impose sanctions, but basically protect our markets, it's stronger. It's 38 versus 37%, I think. Yeah, but this is this is within the margin of error, which means that we can assume that there are as many people who want to impose sanctions yeah. and those who say that we should protect our economy. Okay. And then we were also kind of talking about the, the ladder of, of, of engagement. I think there's some other really interesting findings about what, what kinds of contact with China people were comfortable with and what contact we, they were not comfortable with. Uh, does one of you want to talk about that? We also ask a question about Chinese presence inside Europe, which for me perhaps is another, not, not so much a red line, but something which is problematic for, for many Europeans. And we, we wanted to test whether people are okay or not with Chinese business uh, buying an infrastructure in Europe or building such an infrastructure, or becoming an owner of a football team, of a tech company, of a newspaper. And we see that on most of those issues, people don't find them uh, acceptable. So, uh, which most of all concerns the owning of infrastructure, such as bridges and ports in Europe. 65% uh, on average don't want Chinese companies to own things like this in Europe, while only 18% are fine with it. Uh, and then uh, there is also a, a majority uh, on average that does not want Chinese companies to buy newspapers in Europe uh, or to buy a tech company in Europe. Of course, we, it's, that, it's not just about China. It's also about economic patriotism, which is uh, usually strong across Europe. But this shows another uh, element of where this relationship with China could look problematic from the European public. Yeah, although I, if I were Ursula von der Leyen and I would need to convince the European public uh, of the risks, I would really start at home and talk about ports and about uh, uh, tech companies and newspapers and, and stuff like that, because that seems to be seen by European citizens as problematic, whereas they don't seem to have um, a lot of problems with a trade and investment uh, partnership or relationship with China. So China is halfway between the US and Russia on lots of different elements. Maybe um, we should end with the US because that is the the greatest power in the world, the one that we're the closest to, the one that's been most existential to us during the, the Ukraine war. What were your findings about people's attitudes towards the US and how they've changed? I mean, already two years ago, when we asked this question, the US was clearly um, Europe's most important and strongest partner. But what was striking uh, in April 2021 was that no European country, a majority of respondents saw the United States as an ally. Um, so it was mostly about the United States being a necessary partner. Um, and that has changed to a certain extent. So we talk in our paper about the return um, of the European ally, um, at least in Denmark and in Poland, over 50% of uh, respondents see the United States as an ally um, in the Netherlands, in Sweden. Um, the numbers are also very strong. And overall, if you combine um, ally and partner, 
uh, in our poll, the overwhelming perception is that, yes, the United States are our friend uh, and we want to work with them. We share values and interests with them. So um, that is very positive. And if, but still, what is interesting um, is that this does not translate in a belief that the United States would basically remain engaged in Europe when it comes to protecting our security forever. Um, although people see the strong partnership, um, have a positive view of the United States, they think uh, that Europe cannot always rely on the United States and that Europe needs its own defense capabilities. Um, 74% uh, of people said this on average uh, in April this year, whereas when Trump was still uh, in office in November 2020, only 66, I mean, it was still a strong number, but 66% um, of people said this. So we see an increase despite the fact that the United States has just shown uh, in Ukraine, uh, I think very, very impressively, that they are committed to European security. And Biden, I don't know, has been talking about uh, not one inch of NATO territory uh, that should be kind of lost and, and kind of the strong European commitment um, since he entered office. But Europeans don't seem to buy it or don't seem to, yeah, to, to think that is very reliable, actually. And yet they also don't seem to think that Trump is coming back. Yeah, that is that is a bit of a problem for all those people like myself who want to, who want to translate this as this is a mandate for more defense spending in Europe and for more awareness in Europe. Because at the same time, as, as you said, Europeans are aware that the return of Donald Trump would be a major threat for the transatlantic relationship. But at the same time, they don't consider it very likely. So that might impact their sense of urgency and basically also their readiness to prioritize defense spending over, I don't know, childcare or education and stuff like that. And again, this shows that there is a room for leaders to engage in a debate with the public, to show them the risks of events that could actually happen, although people usually don't see them as as. Uh, really uh, happening. So one thing we should maybe end on, because we do a lot of polling at ECFR, and we always have debates about why do you poll? And do you just think that governments should do what the opinion polls tell them to do? We don't, by the way. But uh, maybe we should talk a little bit about about why public opinion matters uh, at the moment. Um, when it comes to these big foreign policy decisions? If I can start, I, I, I think that there are three big reasons. So one is the guns and butter uh, problem, whereby if the, the decisions that European governments are taking today, like uh, spending more on defense, they will affect uh, uh, European populations because there are trade-offs uh, in the in the public spending, and therefore it's important to have the public opinion on board of those uh, important uh, foreign policy and security decisions. Then, secondly. You mentioned, Mark, that in Sweden, foreign policy is a lens through which people look increasingly at politics in general. But this concerns not just Sweden. It's Foreign policy is a silent issue uh, across Europe, and therefore uh, leaders cannot afford not to listen to their public on those uh, issues. And finally, we are entering in Europe a cycle of uh, several very important elections, like national elections in Poland, uh, Slovakia or Spain, but also uh, a campaign to the European Parliament elections uh, in June next year. 
And this is in this context that the mainstream parties need to really show that they are listening to the public. Otherwise, there is a threat that they might face uh, what they call a populist backlash. And I would like to add another one. I mean, two, basically, because first, I think it's also a difference uh, between democracies and autocracies, that in democracies, people actually matter and their voice should matter and they have a say. And many people say, no, in foreign policy, um, I don't know, you need to know so much to, to do good foreign policy. So the leader needs to tell the public uh, what to do and then the public follows. But I think we have seen very impressively with the election of Donald Trump in 2016, but also with the Brexit referendum, that sometimes, uh, yeah, the public tends to uh, not uh, follow and not to do what uh, the big leaders um, and the elites want them to do. So I think it's actually good to regularly check in with the public to make sure um, that we know where, where the public um, is, basically. Uh, and I think that is very important. It should inform politicians and last point it could also help them to better understand how to communicate with the public for example if i were was about von der line and i would look at our polling i would really conclude that kind of the, the need for de-risking has not really reached the public the sense of urgency here but if that if you want to explain it better you'd really need to start at home you need to start with uh, the ports and the tele telecommunication companies and um, and the tech companies to make it, yeah, to, to make it uh, visible or kind of feasible for, for the public. So I think politicians can learn a lot by looking at our polling. And I would just add that actually it's not just in democracies that public opinion has an important role on what public does. I think if you don't have a social basis for uh, the foreign policy uh, consensus, as we saw most dramatically, as you said, with Brexit and with, um, with, uh, with Trump, um, it can be very fragile and you can kind of see big kind of swings, but that can be equally true in, in um, non-democratic countries where it, in some ways the, the, the regimes are even more insecure about their, their um, status because they don't have the benefit of having won a, a public mandate in an election. Anyway, I think that brings us to the end of what has been a fascinating discussion. If you want to find out more, do read the report, Keeping America Close, Russia Down and China Far Away, How Europeans Navigate a Competitive World, on our website at ecfr.eu. But we're also going to put some other recommendations there because we have one thing left to do on this podcast, and that is our bookshelf segment. What is on your bookshelf, Jana? It's actually uh, a former colleague of ours or uh, a close friend of ours uh, at ECFR. It's Andrew Small's No Limits, The Inside Story of China's War with the West. I thought um, this is um, a very good recommendation uh, looking at the results uh, on China and the discussion we are having not only at ECFR, but also in Europe. I think more people should read the book. And that's the US title. It has been recommended a number of times on the podcast, but there's also... The British edition of the book has got a different title, which is called The Rupture. Um, Pavel, what's on your bookshelf at the moment? I wanted to recommend two books about Europe. Not, not that they uh, require any further recommendation, but I simply feel that they are both great. So one is by our, our council member, Timothy Gartonash, uh, Homelands, which is a personal history of Europe, beautifully written. 
And another book is by this year's international booker winner, Georgi Gospodinov. Uh, the book in English is Time Shelter, but I actually recommend a French translation, uh, which is equally good. Uh, and the title is even better. It's Le Pays du Passé, which means the, the country of the past. The country of the past. What a lovely title. It's, it sounds like a wonderful, wonderful uh, book and a kind of crazy concept behind it. Um, I just bought Time Shelter and uh, I've started reading that. And I've also been reading another book, which was Money by Martin Amis, who has recently uh, died, uh, a very famous British novelist who uh, was probably the, the the most important novelist of the last few decades, but whose work I had never uh, bothered reading before. So um, I'm sort of starting to to engage with this rather bleak uh, introduction into the kind of 1980s um, uh, UK and, uh, and US during the kind of Reagan-Thatcher revolutions. And it's a kind of uh, slightly unpleasant milieu which he evokes, but rather brilliantly. So I think that does bring us to the end of this podcast now. If you enjoyed listening to it, do head to whatever platform you have used to download this episode from and subscribe to future episodes. And while you're there, it would be wonderful if you could give us a positive review and a five-star rating as that will bring other people to the podcast and widen the community of people who dissect the world in 30 minutes on a weekly basis. We'll put links up to all the publications we mentioned on our website at ecfr.eu. But for now, from Jana Pulirin, Pavel Tserka, and myself, Mark Leonard, it's goodbye. The researcher for this podcast is Chiara Breka, and the editor of this episode is Mireya Barrow-Sarats. Mm-hmm.